You're listening to a podcast by New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. So our first point here is the great darkness. I want to look at verses uh, 33 of chapter 15 of Mark. It says, And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And so what we simply see here in this first verse is from about 12 p.m. to 3 p.m., there was darkness that seemed to come out of nowhere. This isn't some sort of eclipse that has some sort of natural explanation. This is a miraculous darkness that covered the land. Now, the reason why this happens is the Lord is trying to point their eyes to something very important. They're on this day, on this Friday, where they're crucifying Christ, this isn't just simply a Friday. This is the, their festival or their holy day of Passover. Jesus is dying on Passover, and they would, what they would have been remembering on this day was many years ago, back in, when the Israel was in, or the Jews were in captivity uh, in Egypt, uh, there were multiple plagues given to Pharaoh because he refused to release his people. And the final one, if you remember, there was a lamb they were to sacrifice and put the blood of the lamb above the door. And uh, anyone who did not have the blood over the uh, door of that family, then the firstborn male was uh, killed by uh, death that the Lord sent. Now, prior to that, prior to that plague where the lamb would be slain to protect God's people, the ninth plague was a plague of darkness. In Exodus 10, 21 through 22, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. A darkness that can be felt. And a darkness that can be felt by all the creation, by those watching. This darkness which preceded this final plague where a lamb would have to die and where people would be protected by being under its blood. So what we see, this is the Lord being very creative, using creation, trying and recalling them to the day where that they're actually celebrating on Passover, a darkness which precedes the death of the lamb. Now God's people would have been celebrating this and would have been waiting for this great conclusion and fulfillment of how the Exodus would be displayed in their day, waiting for the Messiah to come and to drive out the Romans in some sort of Exodus. Yet they missed an obvious sign. They missed what the Lord had placed before them, a great darkness which preceded the Lamb. Again, it's Interesting that these religious people of the day would miss the beautiful symbolism and fulfillment that the Lord was putting on display for his glory and our good. Now, some of you, as we study this and we think, okay, so the Jews of the day were supposed to, um, should have noticed, hey, this is very reminiscent to what we study on Passover, this great darkness that came that preceded the, the death of the Lamb. And you might 
think to yourself, well, what does that have to do with me at all? All right, that, that was cool for them. But since we know Jesus came and died, the surprise has kind of been ruined. Some, some of us kind of approach this, um, like my kids sometimes do Christmas gifts. Sometimes they'll have something like very similar, and they have to open it at the same time. You know, you're like, okay, everyone, don't, don't start. Don't start. Three, two, one, open. And they, you hope that they open at the same pace. Uh, Maddox is a little bit more feral, so he opens, like, he just tears through the wrapping paper very quickly. And usually Claire's like, oh, now I know what it is. And so she feels like it's a bit ruined. First, I want to say this. The good news for God's people back then, that God was pursuing them and going to save them, and this came and was fulfilled by Christ, should still be good news for you today. The gospel should be good news for you every day. Not simply the day of your conversion, but every day. It will remain in the faith. But even then, this is not to say this does not have meaning for you. In fact, I think it showed them something, the same thing it should show us. And that is that Scripture, the Old Testament, was foreshadowing and pointing people to Jesus. Now for them, they're asking Christ as he's on the cross. You say you're God. Take yourself off. Save yourself. And he's trying to draw their eyes to something larger. But they missed the point of Scripture and who it was about. And often, I think we can do the same thing. When you read the Old Testament, you're like, this is some weird stuff. I have no clue how this applies to my life at all. What we do is adopt the me-centric models. I think something very similar to what some of the Pharisees had done And we fail to look to see where Jesus is in the Word. I remember as a new convert, I used to ask all the time, uh, I used to ask, what uh, what is God like? Man, what is he like? And as a, I I was a a mystic. And so as a mystic, I, I do what mystics do, right? I try to look and try to determine who God is by funny feelings that I might get during a song, or uh, something I would try to do is try to interpret who God was. I would ask him, because I'd heard somewhere that he really loved the number seven over every other number he created. That was his favorite number. And so I, I would ask, like God, uh, um, I would ask him a question, and if, if, this is the, if, if, you, if this is the answer, show me a seven. Like it was like family feud with God. Show me number seven. And what I would do is, and typically I would pass a mile marker eventually that would have seven. So I knew when to ask the big questions of what I wanted to get or wanted to know. Uh, and so this is how I work, trying to figure out who God was. Prove it to me. God, show, uh, do something like he's some sort of monkey performing tricks on my behalf so I can learn something. And again, I, that's what we see with those who are mocking him on the cross. And yet he shows them this great darkness pointing to exactly who he is. The lamb whose blood rescues you. But they, like us, often fail to look at his word to know who he is. Who are you, God? As they yelled at him, who, you know, 
asking who he really is, mocking his claims. And Jesus has a loud answer, and he's using creation to show it. Look to my word. You want to know me? Study my word. Look to the word in which I've given you. Though they knew it, they missed it. I think many of us oftentimes fall into that same camp. You think you know it, but you're missing it because it's not the word you're look, looking to to understand your Savior. The Lord is doing something just incredible in this moment, trying to turn their eyes, doing exactly what he asked them, they asked him to do, show a sign. And here this man on the cross controlling nature to show not just a sign, but that this was foretold, foreshadowed for them. The one comes next is a great cry. Again, it's interesting that people wanted signs and wonders from Jesus. Uh, during his ministry, that was asked to him often. You know, Perform a miracle. Do something for me. Even again, as we talked about last week and a moment ago, even as I was on the cross, uh, show me how great you are by throwing yourself off. But due to their sin, they had become blind. And notice his great cry in verse 34. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, I want to be careful here. Uh, there, there is one God. Right? Jesus is fully God. Uh, he's the second person of the Trinity. This is the Son, and this is the describing the role within the Trinity. Uh, Jesus is not part of God or part of a God. He is fully God, the image of the invisible God. Now, there are books that can be written on this phrase, and uh, let me just say, uh, there is a mystery, a, beautiful, a beauty in the mystery, uh, behind how is it that the Son can feel forsaken by the Father within the oneness of the Trinity. And what we need to do is simply be marveled at the mystery. Because how can we, how can we understand that which is infinite and eternal? So, let's keep it simple. What we have seen, as we read and as we've seen depictions of the crucifixion, is we see the physical and emotional torment, but this shows us something deeper. How the suffering is somehow deeper than just physical and emotional. It is at the soul and the spirit of Christ. It's to the point where he feels forsaken by the Father. And this is to show the intensity and the metaphysical undergoings that Jesus is taking. But also, like the darkness, it's meant to give them exactly what they asked for. A sign, a sign greater than simply coming off a cross. Jesus is pointing the audience to Psalm 22. And when I say the audience, I don't just mean those in the crowd, I mean you as well, as you read his word. Look at Psalm 22. Verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Literally the first words of the psalm. Christ is quoting this, and only if they had they gone to the word, only if they had mine, had gone past their desire to mock Christ, they would have gotten a clear picture of who this Jesus was and why he didn't answer the request to save himself. See verse 2 of Psalm 22. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night I find no rest. Again, if only they had remembered the psalm. Only if they had listened to what Christ has said, they would have been amazed. Verses 7 and 8 in Psalm 22, it goes a little more detailed. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me and they wag their heads. At, he trusts in the Lord. Let, uh, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him, they say. Let him rescue him, for the Lord delights in him, they say. The psalm gets more and more detailed. Only had they listened to what Christ had actually said, they would have gotten exactly what they asked. He even can continues in the psalm, the psalmist in 22, verse 14 and 15. I am poured out like water. All of my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shard, and my tongue sticks to my jaws, and you lay me in the dust of death. A prophetic look at water and blood pouring from the side when they would shove a spear into him. His dry mouth, which sought to be relieved by wine and myrrh, yet he denied it. If they only had listened, they would have understood what he was saying. Maybe their eyes would have gone a little bit further down the psalm. In verse 16 and 18, For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands, they have pierced my feet. I count all my bones, they stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. For my clothing, they cast lots. If only they had listened to the first line of that psalm in which he quotes from the cross. Eloi, Eloi, lima sabachthani. They not only would have seen who Jesus was, they would have seen their own guilt. Which, by the way, is exactly what happens when you study Scripture. You see your own guilt, yet you see Christ. And you realize the grace and your mercy that you're under. Jesus is pointing them to this psalm in his dying moments, being vulnerable and intentional and directing their minds to who he actually is, being forsaken so that you and I would never be. Only if they'd understood, only if they had listened. Verse 35 through 36 reads, and some of the pastor, or bystanders hear it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. Now, the reason, this may seem a little bit, like, where did that come from? Um, it, it, so what he's saying is either Eloi or what they hear is uh, Elise or uh, Allah. So it's, there's a very similarity in between the two words. And the crowd, as he's calling out to God, they hear the wrong name and they misunderstand what he's saying. So there's two thoughts of what's happening. There's some people 
who think these are friends, uh, mishearing him and trying to help him, bringing him a wine to help his dry mouth or to even ease pain, perhaps. So this one, as you notice, this does, does not have myrrh in it, which would be the natural narcotic. Another position, and one that I believe because I'm difficult, is that this is mockery by those who were there. Uh, now, I want to explain a little bit why I say this. The sour wine is, is one of the clues uh, for this. Um, what, some of the components in the ancient world, they had like outhouses uh, that they would have in, in, uh, uh, among trails, and they would have uh, ways to clean these. And one of them was taking old wine and mixing it with water uh, to cover up the smell of an outhouse. Um, they would attach to a, a stick or a reed of sorts. Uh, and so what it looks like is those, some are mocking him, going, wait a minute, he thinks Elijah's going to come and help him. Let's see what happens. Meanwhile, they're sticking a sponge with fecal matter into his face, furthering humiliating the king. And this is where Jesus utters a loud cry in verse 37 and breathes his last. So much pain, so much suffering, so much mockery. But I think it's good for us to remember that Christ was not some sort of pathetic or helpless victim. The cry to the Father was pre-written in Psalm 22. This is predetermined. The cry that had led to his last breath, predetermined, so that we could be presented as holy and blameless. In these last moments of Jesus, these last sayings of Christ, if they do nothing, they show his humanity. It captures the heart of our Lord. And hopefully, it should capture our tongue and lead to a great confession. Which is my next point, what we see in this passage is a great confession. Now, preceding the great cry, or proceeding, it came, uh, something interesting happens. The gospel writers record a couple different things. I want to first look at Mark 15, verse 38. Uh, it says, And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from, from top to bottom. Matthew, and when he talks about what happens, he mentions that, but he also adds some more details. He says, the, And the earth shook, and the rocks were split. There was a great confession on who had been killed. What we see is a great confession on who this person of Christ was. Nature confesses who Christ is as the earth shook and his rock split, making a bold declaration that he is the king of creation. What we see in Matthew Matthew's account is the, the veil being torn. Now the, the veil was there to separate the outside world from the Holy of Holies. And the high priest was going there once a year. But this confesses something about our Christ as well. The fact that it's torn in two, a priest did go in 
priest who laid down his life, substituting himself for guilty people, atoning for our sins. And Jesus, like the Passover lamb, makes us safe under his blood and allows us to be a nation of priests, a people who can call upon the name of the Lord. In fact, not only that, but you can, Scripture says you can go and he tells you to come before his throne of grace. Not as a suggestion, but you ought to do that. A mandate to come before him. Anyone under the blood. Hebrews 10, 9, 12 says, And then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. This is the first and second covenant. All by that will uh, have been sacrificed through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at a service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. I cannot emphasize to you a greater point that there could be no, or there needs to be no, any other sacrifice. There can be no, and there's no reason for any time for there to be any other intercessor but Christ. When the common misconceptions is people thinking their pastor is their priest. Scripture literally says, and what we see here in Mark, that the veil was torn. The veil was torn, and now you have access to the Father because there's a great exchange. Christ took your punishment, and now you're clothed in His righteousness. You don't have to come. I have, I have no fast track to Jesus. Now there's offices in Scripture. There's pastors and bishops, which are the same thing. I, I like bishop because I like alliteration, and I think Bishop Barry has a nice ring to it. That's just a side note. But that's not to say there, there are offices, but you are priests. Now, secondly, something I see often, I think, in my own life as we all struggle in, on this side of heaven, and something I hear, I think in many of yours, is often we sacrifice, or what we sacrifice uh, in life uh, comes out of a what we think is a need. And what I mean by that is this idea that I have to do something to get some merit with Christ. That I have to go to church because if not, you know, either I'll get a punishment or I, I'll, I won't be in good standings with the Lord. What we see here is Christ did it. He finished it. There's no need for any other sacrifices that will atone for your sins. And any attempt to do that cheapens the cross. But it's so instinctively there in our flesh. 
I know and have met and have been a person who has thought, I, you know, maybe I should, you know, I'll give a little more trying to atone for something I've done. Martin Luther used to punish himself, he used to whip himself um, uh, for the sins. He would go and confess all these things, and he would remember sins, but the priest didn't want to talk to him anymore because he wouldn't shut up. And so then he would go back to his room, and he would whip himself for the sins that he couldn't ask forgiveness for. Um, there was a, I think of the, the uh, there was a monastery over in, in France where the monks used to go to, they would... Uh, they, they felt guilty and, uh, because they didn't face as much persecution as other Christians, and so they would starve themselves, bringing upon their own persecution, trying to earn something, some merit with Christ so they can come before the Lord with some sort of clean hands from their work, and there couldn't be a greater lie. Your works make you only dirtier. The veil being torn is good news for you. It's good news for you. That you have a high priest who is an intercessor, who unlike the first covenant, doesn't have to make sacrifice after sacrifice, but one for all. Now, what we need to be careful to do so not cheapen it. Look what the Lord points us to in his word. Remember the last breath and indicated by his words, it is finished. And remember that there is nothing you can add to his work. The splitting of the veil is a great confession of your only high priest, your only hope, and your only intercessor, and the only reason that you are seen as righteous. If you know the hymn, my faith has found a resting place, maybe it it puts it uh, in a nice poetic way. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. So we see nature confesses. We see there's a confession at the temple. And now we see a confession from an unlikely place. Look at verse uh, 38 or 39, excuse me, it says, And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in, in this way he breathed his last breath, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Now, one of the big questions people have, is this a conversion? Um, so there's a couple of different views. The first view uh, is that Jesus simply just, or excuse me, that the centurion is simply stating, Ah, Jesus, he's a son of a God. Kind of like, another way of saying it, He's like Hercules. He's like a demigod. I mean, this is what he would have been familiar with, this type of religious structure. And notice, right, he says, truly this man was the son of God. So even if he was converted, his theology needs to be worked out a little bit better because Jesus is not was, he is. There's another view that maybe the man, it's not a conversion, but maybe he just utters a truth that he doesn't fully understand. By the way, you see, that, you see that in Scripture, right? We see that with Pilate, who makes a sign meant to mock Jesus, king of the Jews, but it couldn't be a truer statement. In fact, it kind of underscored of what he's king of. Not just the Jews, but of the Romans and of all of creation. 
You have Caiaphas in John 18, 14. Caiaphas, this high priest. Right? It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. He uttered something he did not fully understand. And maybe the centurion is doing like those who came before him. But there is the historical view, and I think the one that reads most naturally, that what we see here is a confession of a converted Gentile. I say this partly because of the flow of the passage. Mark is building up. He's building up on something. And finally, Jesus breathes his last breath. And the first words, the first thing that's said is by this man who makes a proclamation for the way that Jesus died and how he and what he uttered in his last moments. That there was something incredible and different about this Jesus. Now, the early church had some stranger, I say early church, medieval had some different uh, views of him. They, they went all the way to say he was actually a blind soldier who stabbed Jesus in the side and Jesus' blood got on his eyes and healed him from blindness. That's going a little bit far. I think we can all agree with that. But we'll have to wait to heaven to find out. But you no, know, without a question of a doubt, what we see is whether it's by accident, whether it's, uh, whether it's misunderstanding, he makes a correct Confession. But the Jews anticipated and rejected this Gentile pagan gets right. I want, you, I want you to remember back to something. Jesus asks Peter, who do they say that I am? And he gives him a list of people. The next question he gives him, he says, who do you say that I am? And if you remember, Peter says, you are the Christ the Son of the living God, the Son of God. He goes, you're right. Don't feel good about yourself. God gave you the answer. But that's right. And then he says, don't tell anybody. Keep that to yourself. Don't say anything to anyone. What I love is he tells Peter not to publicly declare what the Lord had revealed to him. But in this moment, this last breath of Christ it is no longer to be hidden. The truth is publicly declared, not by angels, not by wise and intelligent philosophers or priests or theologians, but by that which symbolized sin and the subjection of the Jews, a Gentile dog is to declare publicly who Jesus is, the Son of God. Now what we see after this great confession is we see a great devotion. Now I was trying to explain a little of this to my son. Uh, I love my children. I have the best children in the world uh, I, I, they're such a blessing to me. Um, my son, but they're kind of creepy sometimes. Um, I say that in love. They, you know, they're homeschooled, so. Um, <laughs> he was staring at me the other day, just like studying me, just kind of like glaring at me from across the table. And I'm working on the computer, and I look up at Maddox, I'm like, yeah, well, you okay? What's, what's wrong with you? What are you plotting over there? And he says to me, he says, uh, why do you like to kiss mom? I'm like, well, I, I, I love your mom. He said, okay, well, why do you love mom? 
Like, well, you know her. There's a lot of reasons to love mom. She's a wonderful woman. He goes, yeah, but like, what's the thing that made you like love her, love her? Was it her hair? <laughs> but listen, my wife does have nice hair. Uh, I, I, but I told him, I said, no, I mean, I, I do like her hair, but um, there's something that I noticed about your mother early on, and that was her loyalty and devotion to her family, to her friends, and, and I've seen that come to you know, fruition in our marriage. She has a wonderful devotion to the Lord and to you, know, you Maddox, and Claire, and myself. Um, and I, I begin to try to explain why devotion is so of great importance, because it really defines the death, a depth of a relationship. And that's what we see here. We're going to see a great devotion that really puts into a beautiful picture of the depth of a relationship. Look at 40 and 41. It says, There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and the younger, and of Joseph and Simon, and he was in Galilee. And they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up, with, came up with him to Jerusalem. Now, if you're reading this all together, it seems, let's be honest, it seems a little anticlimactic, right? We get, we get a crucifixion. There's blackness. There's trembling earth, rock splitting, veils tearing, dramatic last breaths and confessions. And then it ends simply with, and some women were up there to follow him around. Seems a bit anticlimactic, but let me say, this is not just irrelevant data. This is actually a very powerful point that Mark is making. First off, let me just say this. Uh, women didn't follow rabbis around, right? That was something that men did. The Bible learning was for the men. In fact, there was a rabbinic prayer, I think, that puts it into uh, perspective. And this wasn't a, a cutesy prayer. Uh, this was... Well, I'll just read it to you. It says, Blessed are you, Lord our God, ruler of the universe, who has not created me a woman. Now, for different reasons, I am also happy that I was not created uh, to be a woman. I have a very low pain tolerance, and I have seen my wife in labor twice with no medication, and I've seen her breastfeed two ch children. And I, given how I respond to a splinter, I, I can't imagine that. To my defense, the splinter was very large. I'll just say that. But what I want to point out, though, is in this passage, Jesus is not revolutionizing anything. There's not a revolution of how women are to be looked at, respected, or their, their role. This is not a, a revolutionary. It may have been revolutionary for the culture. Rather, this is a great restoration Women are called to be strong in the faith. They're called to preach and teach the gospel. Jesus restores a dignity that was theirs in creation. Now, I'm not, this is, Jesus is not a leader of a feminist movement, and he's not obliterating complementary roles given to men and women. But he's restoring biblical dignity. But look at the power of this. Peter, the great Peter, he ran a fear for his life, but the women stayed. Judas, if you know his story, he runs to the temple. He throws the money back into the temple, trying to reverse what he had done. He runs out of guilt. 
but the women stayed. The disciples dispersed. The women stayed. There are a group of courageous women here. And as a witness to his death, it will be their blessing that they'll be the first to see the resurrection. And they will need to go and proclaim it to all those who ran and who were weak in the faith. And I love it that these courageous women stay with Jesus despite the fact that he's dying and now dead because they realize that even in death, Jesus is worthy of obedience. Now, women, you ought to proclaim the gospel. Being a woman is not an excuse for for a lack of devotion or lack of confession or lack of study or knowledge of the scripture. Being a woman, is, is, that is not an excuse for not studying and teaching. In fact, scripture tells you older women teach the younger. A mandate, not a suggestion. Men, You ought not to be cowards to teach the gospel in your home and outside of your home. Fear is not an excuse to be unfaithful to your calling and to your king. But the beauty of this picture and of their devotion, it's not because they are inherently just amazing. The reason that they are devoted because a greater devotion, a great devotion was shown to them. They've been watching the greatest display of devotion, a depth of a relationship that they cannot fathom. A devotion that led Jesus to the cross, a devotion that led the Messiah to die, and a devotion that has promised to secure you now and forever. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. To learn more about New Heights Church or a relationship with Christ, please visit our website at www.newheightswv.com.